Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. It feels so good to be back. Two weeks, two weeks. I've been, I've been away, up in the mountains, recuperating, reflecting, um, living, enjoying. I must say, and I said this last year, I feel like if you get a chance and you have the funds and you have a group of people and you all could chip in on a cabin in the Smoky Mountains of Gatlinburg, Tennessee, make your way to Tennessee, no matter where you are in this country or the world or wherever, and just go there for a week or two and just live. Get a cabin, try to get as high as you can in the elevation, and just watch. And just sit and think and enjoy yourself, have fun. It's the best thing you can do. It's the best thing I do every year. This year has some competition because we went to Chicago. We're probably going to go somewhere else pretty soon, I would imagine. Maybe for my birthday. I don't know yet. And that involved flying. And I had never been to Chicago, never been to the Midwest. So that was a whole different thing. But usually, I would say, usually in a year, you cannot do better than Gatlinburg, Tennessee. I, was, I want to do want to go to Aspen, Colorado, and I want to go to the uh, different mountain ranges, the Rockies, things like that. But the Smoky Mountains, when they're smoking and it's an early morning, you just sit out there outside and just watch them. It's nothing like it. I love the Strip of Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge, Seaverville, Townsend. I love the entire surrounding area. There is nothing like that area. I love it dearly. And being about two hours away from it, I can go now pretty much whenever I want, as opposed to six, seven, or eight hours. But I like to save it, like to make it feel special. I don't want to uh, tire myself of it and go. And going once a year to this point seems the sweet spot. Maybe twice a year I could probably do, and it, it wouldn't affect it at all. But honestly, I could move there, and I feel like I'd be fine. And um, I absolutely loved it. Great vacation and all of that stuff. Um. Uh, you know, uh, uh, again, if you can get there, and if you can't, try to find your way there at some point. If you're just there for maybe five days or whatever, it's worth it, depending on how much money you spend. But like I said, get you a big group of people, friends, family, whatever. Buy, rent out a cabin. It's worth it. I promise. But that's my Gatlinburg thing. Uh, feels good to be back. It's been a long time since I've been in the what I call the studio, which is my couch. Uh, but I want to switch it up today. Got a few things I want to talk about. Got some books that I want to dive into uh, quickly. Not going to do a watch alone today. We'll probably pick back up on that next week or the week after. Who knows? But I just want to do something different. I want to go over a few things that have been interesting me. And to make some uh, cross comparison between books that I really love. A year ago or two years ago, I would not be saying sitting here. I didn't think I'd be sitting here saying I have some books that I love with. I have a favorite chapter in a book. That's that's crazy in and of itself. But we're going to get into this. Um, we're just going to see how this goes. I'm just going to talk openly about a few topics, go to the books, give my thoughts on what I think and how that compares to today. Primarily all the stuff we have to do with movies and film because I know that's kind of my, my first passion or whatever. And then after that, um, I don't know. Might talk about a movie I just saw a few days ago, Real Bravo. Started it a while back. Watched about an hour of it, then I got off of it. When I went to watch the rest of it, it was going off of Max, HBO Max. But then I saw that it was on TV the other day, and it had just started, so I finished watching it. 
pretty much watched the whole thing again and love that movie. Uh, first Howard Hawks movie all the way through I've seen. So that's pretty good. Um, and I guess I'll give one or two thoughts on that at the end, if I remember. But I do want to start with the chapters in the books. But uh, again, it's a Wednesday. Hope you all are doing good. Hope your summer's going well again. If you can travel, go anywhere in this country or the world, please do. Uh, the world is so much bigger than our little lots that we have uh, carved out for ourselves. And if we can have a chance to see just a little bit of it, I think it goes a long way. I really do. And you do catch that book because based on the Chicago trip, this trip, I do have the uh, the travel book very heavy. So definitely going to try to go somewhere else before the year is over. But anyway, uh, let's jump into it. The first book I want to reference. Now, this comes from uh, Adventures in a Screen Trade, A Personal View of Hollywood and Screenwriting by William Goldman. And I think this is a great book. Now, you have to keep in mind this book was written in 1981 if i'm not mistaken i'm gonna pick up the mic here if you hear some noise i want to be able to hold it so i can sit back while we go through this so um william goldman wrote this book and i do believe do believe it was 1981 so for context that kind of puts you into where this was at the time and if you don't know where it was at the time, or if I didn't tell you that, you would pick it up anyway, based on the type of movies he's going to reference and the type of people he's going to reference, because at the time they were new, whereas now they're not. But again, different time, maybe 23, 40 something years ago. So long time ago. But we're going to a specific chapter. Now, there are many chapters in this book I could explore. and We will explore them, uh, you know. In, in, in due time, but today I wanted to go to my favorite chapter of this book. One of my two favorite chapters of this book, probably my favorite. It's called The Ecology of Hollywood or George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Gunja Din. And uh, here we go. So I, I guess how this is going to work is I'm going to read it, try to go fast, try not to bore you, and then we'll talk about what I just read. And it's not that long. It's only a few pages long. And then I'll give some uh, thoughts. And then we'll go to another section. And then we'll kind of cross compare the two. Hopefully this won't be an hour and a half or two hours long. I don't think it will be. But I am very much interested in this stuff. So I thought it would be uh, interesting. Let's see here. Okay, I think I'm going to put the mic back down. Because I kind of need two hands to read. So... Forgive me for all the noise. We're still figuring this studio life out, you know. But again, The Ecology of Hollywood, or George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Gunja Din. And this is Adventures in a Screen Trade, A Personal View of Hollywood and Screenwriting by William Goldman. Hollywood has never been short of boy wonders. Joseph L. Mankiewicz received his first Oscar nomination. He was 27 years old. Stanley Donnan was 24 when he co-directed On the Town. Most notable, I suppose, is Orson Welles, who received four nominations for Citizen Kane, a feat never accomplished up to that time. Welles was 25 years old. But nothing in memory comes close to the dominance of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Both are extraordinarily talented, have been working successfully for a decade or more, 
and are still in their 30s. And when I say dominance, consider this. Lucas and Spielberg have been crucial to five to the five most successful pictures in history. Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back belong to Lucas. Spielberg directed Jaws and E.T. The fifth, Raiders of the Lost Ark, was a collaboration. Lucas being the inceptor, Spielberg calling the shots. Not only have these films made the two among the richer young men in America, the four released prior to these this year have all won various prizes and awards and been nominated for a lot more, but none of the four has won the Oscars for Best Picture. E.T. will change that. Now, again, this was before the 1982 Oscars. This was written in 1981. So to him, William Goldman, at the time, E.T. seemed like the clear-cut winner. We know now that it did not win. I do believe Gandhi won that year. Uh, and I do want to clarify that. Even though I have looked this up before when I read this this section. But for the sake of the pod, I don't like to come in here and lie to you, you know. Uh, I like to make sure I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing my my due diligence. You understand me? Let's see here. So that's a 1982 Academy Awards. Uh, maybe it should be the 1981 Academy Awards. Or is it movies for the 1981? Let's see here. Nope, maybe it's 1983 Academy Awards. Because that's the Raging Bull year. Yeah, I think this is right. Yeah. So... The movies that year were, um, if I can get to them quickly, um, Best Picture, Gandhi, uh, E.T. was nominated, Missing, Tootsie, and The Verdict. It's not a bad year at all. The Verdict, I really want to see, that's by uh, Sidney Lumet. Tootsie is by Sidney Pollack and starring, um, what's that boy name? Dustin Hoffman missing don't know much about and E.T. obviously that's Spielberg and then Richard Attenborough directed Gandhi which won best picture so that's the 55th Academy Awards uh, presented April 11 1983 for the 1982 movies so that's how that works anyway let's continue uh, so E.T. would change that he was wrong in hindsight this is the middle of 82, and next year's awards are nine months away, and half the films for this year have yet to be released. I don't care. There's no doubt in my mind that E2 will win. So, just this. What the five films have in common, besides their worldwide appeal, is that they are all comic book movies. Before I comment on that quote by William Goldman, which is really what I wanted to talk about in this uh, section, or in this chapter, I do want to go to Gandhi and see how much it made that year. So Gandhi made $127.8 million in the box office and it took a $22 million budget. So it made five times its money, uh, dang near. Now E.T. the Extraterrestrial made $792.9 million on the $10.5 million budget. Holy. So I can see why he thought that that would win the 55th Academy Award for Best Picture. But Gandhi wasn't a slouch. It made money as well. Um, you know, just not $700 million. But it did do well. It, it did business, which I think he does mention here. But anyway, let's go back. Um, just this. What the five films have in common, talking about Spielberg and uh, 
George Lucas's movies. Besides the worldwide appeal is that they are all comic book movies. Now, this is interesting because we're living in the, the comic book renaissance or the uh, comic book era, if you will, which I do think is coming to an end. Uh, I do think there's comic book fatigue. And we're seeing that audiences kind of are done with the whole thing. And it should have probably been done, them being Marvel, at 2019 after Endgame. Because that kind of was where you were going to peak and it was only going to be down here from there. You did everything you could. It was 10 years. You should have moved on and done something else. They didn't. And they will um, pay for it. But anyway, we're in that mode right now with the Marvel and the DC and all this stuff. And he's calling movies like Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, Jaws, E.T., and Raiders of the Lost Ark comic book movies. Now, this was so interesting to me. Mind you, this is called The Ecology of Hollywood. This section is so interesting to me, and you're going to see why soon. But I just think the notion of calling movies that aren't comic book movies still comic book movies is great because we do that now. Certain movies come out, I'll be like, yeah, that's a good movie, but it's also a comic book movie. It doesn't have capes and you know superheroes, but it's doing the same stuff. It's kind of telling the same story in the same way and using some of the same cinema language that comic book movies you know, with actual comic book characters do as well. So it's kind of of the same elk. So I definitely see what he's doing right here. It's just so funny that he mentioned this way back in 1982. And I been kind of mentioned some of this stuff in the 2010s, you know, amongst friends or my brother or whatever. And I was just like, wow. So, yeah, it's true. They say nothing new is under the sun. But anyway, let's keep going. If you think I'm putting down comic book movies, you cannot be more wrong. Not only have I written my share uh, of them, my favorite movie of all time is a comic book movie, Gunja Den. I have seen it 16 times, still start to cry before the credits are over and we'll return to it shortly. But first, the matter of definition. Before he continues, I do want to look up Gunja Den for you because I'm quite certain many of you have never heard it, heard of it. That might be an, uh, an assumption on my part, but I do, I, I do believe that to be true. Let's see here. Gunja then is a 1939 film it says adventure and war film um, starring Cary Grant, Victor McLaughlin and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Produced and directed by George Stevens an hour and 57 minutes uh, distributed by RKO Pictures was adapted from Gunja Den, which is a poem by Ruddy Art Kipling an 1890 poem if you can believe it um it made $2 million at the box office, but you got to remember, this was a completely different landscape of movies. Um, and that's a win for that movie back then, I would assume. But in the 30s and that era, you know, the the idea of a movie being successful is completely different than it is today or even 50 years ago. Um, where budgets have inflated amongst with everything else. And, you know, what's deemed a success today is nowhere near the same thing as it was almost 100 years ago which is when Gunja Den came out in 1939. But it says British Army Sergeants Ballantyne, Cutter, and McChesney served in India during the 1880s along with the native water bearer Gunja Den. While completing a dangerous telegraph repair mission, they unearthed evidence of the suppressed thuggy cult. When Gunja Den tells the sergeants about a secret temple made of gold, the fortune-hunting 
hunting Cutter is captured by the thuggies and it's up to his friends to rescue him. So it's basically a, a rescue mission. Just for a little context. Okay, let's continue. But first, the matter of definition. I've used the term comic book movie several times now. I think it's only fair that I tell you precisely what it means. Except I can't do that. Primarily because we get into matters of personal taste. What I find a comic book movie you may totally disagree with. And you may be right. For example, I think The Deer Hunter, the searing indictment of American involvement in Southeast Asia, was a comic book movie. And I think Bambi, yes, I know it's an animated cartoon, is not. So that's interesting. The Deer Hunter by Michael Cimino, starring uh, Robert De Niro, Christopher Walken, uh, Meryl Streep, I believe. I think it won Best Picture in 76, 77, something like that. Uh, now I feel like I got to look that up. Should have had it all looked up. Should have read this chapter again. Huh? I feel like a 1978 and it won Academy Award for Best Picture. Uh, so I'm guessing that's for the 79. Because it came out December 8th, 1978. So for the 79 Academy Awards and won Best Picture and Best Director from Michael Cimino. But yes, The Deer Hunter. Uh, I've only heard good things about it. Haven't seen it yet, but I've only heard good things. And Bambi, you know what that is. Okay. But if I can't give a precise definition of what the hell I'm trying to say, at least I am able to give a few parallels, which should help set the parameters of what I'm after. Food, empty calories, not underlined, not junk food, which has a pejorative connotation. Please remember that in none of this am I making a critical judgment against the comic book movie. But as an example of empty calories, put down potato chips. Television, the only primetime entertainment series that is not a comic book movie program, is MASH. Not because of its outstanding quality, but because every scene in MASH, no matter how wildly farcical, is grounded in the madness of death. That is what gives it its tone. That is the heart of the piece. You can make MASH into my mother the car easily enough. Just keep those same wonderful actors and stick them in a giant army training camp here in the States. And the wounded are simply guys hurting in fights or drunk in driving accidents. Of which, by the way, there are more than plenty near any major army post. And what you've got then is a bunch of goofy surgeons grousing because they're stuck in the service and not out in the civilian world making a fortune. It might just be as funny and just as successful and absolutely will be exactly like every other series on air. Music, bubblegum songs, Billy Joel, Elton John, etc. The kind of singer-songwriter who basically appeals to pop music's target audience. The teeny boppers who buy albums. The Beatles began as bubblegum musicians. I want to hold your ha-ha-ha hand and the like. Then they changed. Lennon and his solo albums did not write bubblegum music. McCartney, the most successful songwriter in history, still does. Now let's try and take some of this and apply it to comic book movies. None of these are meant to be strict rules, but more often than not, I think they're true. So before William Goldman lists his criteria for what's a comic book movie or not, Basically, I think to this point, we have a bit of an understanding for kind of not a mass appeal or mass audience or general audience concerning concerns, make a comic book, but more like empty calories, like there is there is no depth or which I think he's going to get to. But you can kind of tell there is a little bit of stretching the uh, what could actually conceivably happen. So kind of stretching the truth a bit or having to suspend your disbelief more than you should in a certain movie, right? Or empty calorie like potato chips, which I mentioned, uh, no depth or no sustenance. But let's see how he uh, dictates what's a comic book movie and what isn't. 
One, generally only bad guys die. And if a good guy does kick, he does it heroically. Two, there tends to be a lack of resonance. Like the popcorn you're munching, it's not meant to last. Three, the movie turns in on itself. Its reference points tend to be other movies. If, for example, there had been no Saturday afternoon serials, there would have been no frame for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Four, and probably most important, the comic book movie doesn't have a great deal to do with life as it exists as we know it to be. Rather, it deals with life as we would prefer it to be, safer that way. So let's go through each one of these and uh, discuss them just quickly. Generally, only bad guys die, and if a good guy does kick, he does it heroically. I don't have much on that one. Um, do I think every good guy needs to die in order for the movie to not become a book? No. Um, but I guess just holding up a sense of truth, right, to each character. I guess that's kind of what he's getting at. Two, that tends to be a lack of resonance. So like the popcorn you're munching is not meant to last. I mentioned it. Empty calories, he mentioned it. Um it doesn't really have depth it's not going to nourish you really long term the movie turns in on itself its reference point tends to be other movies if for example there had been no saturday afternoon serials there would have been no frame for raiders of the lost ark this is the most important one because i think every movie now or at least 99 percent of them will probably be comic book movies in because they all self-referential and they all are, are referencing the history of cinema in some way and that when movies do that to me, it really makes no movie feel original or, uh, you know, creative or different. They all kind of feel like the same thing when they're all referencing the same stuff. And I I really vibe with the third one. I, I really appreciate that point because I think it's true. And four, and probably most important, the comic movie doesn't have a great deal to do with life as it exists, as we know it to be. Rather, it deals with life as we would prefer it to be safer that way. So safe is another answer. So you can catch the widest net, get the most audience. You, you don't want to alienate too many people, so you're going to be safe. That makes sense. Let's continue. Let me briefly explain now my feelings about Bambi and the Deer Hunter. Does anyone remember, say, the last part of Deer Hunter? Saigon is going up in flames with Robert De Niro, an ordinary guy with no contacts in high places, is out of service and back in Pennsylvania. He hears about his old buddy, Christopher Walken, who's still back there. Shazam, De Niro's in Saigon. Now the entire world is trying to get out, but somehow De Niro gets in. He finds Walken. Do you know what Walken has been doing all this time? He's been playing that game of Russian roulette with real bullets. The Russian roulette ploy was made up by the movie's creators, by the way. It didn't happen in reality. For the months and months, Walken has been taking on all comers in this Looney Tunes Russian roulette. And guess what? Wapo. He's undefeated, untied, and unscored on. It will take a computer a while to give the odds against it happening. But never mind, because now we're into the confrontation scene. Uh, De Niro versus Walken at Russian roulette. If you looked at the billing of the picture on your way in, did you ever doubt who was going to win? Zap, De Niro's unscathed, but Walken dies with the touch of the heroic smile on his lips. All this was exciting, and I enjoyed it every bit as I used to be enthralled by Batman having it out with the Penguin, and precisely on that level. What Deer Hunter told me was what I already knew and believed in. No matter how horrid the notion of war, Robert De Niro would end up starring, staring soulfully at the beautiful, long-suffering Meryl Streep. So I say in spite of its skill and the seriousness of its subject matter, we have here a well-disguised comic book. Nothing shook my world. Okay, Bambi. Now let's look through some of this. Or let's discuss this very quickly. 
so I know the scene that he's talking about. I haven't seen the movie, but I've seen the scene with De Niro and Robert Walken in Saigon playing Russian roulette. So apparently De Niro wins as usual, but Walken, who's been doing that for I know who knows how long, piling up bodies, finally loses to De Niro, and then De Niro goes home and gets Meryl Streep. Uh, after being able to enter Saigon when nobody else could, all this kind of stuff. So basically he's questioning the kind of internal logic of the movie, right? And them having to stretch it out as far as they have would lead credence to it being, in his mind, in his opinion, a comic book movie because some of this stuff is a bit far-fetched. And also, it always ends with a happy ending, even though it probably wasn't in real life. So again, it doesn't really mirror real life. Okay? I think we have an understanding on why he thinks The Deer Hunter is a comic book movie. He says a well-disguised comic book movie. And it's, you know, has a lot of skill and a lot of that stuff. I don't, again, he's not making it a negative connotation. Okay, Bambi. And the shower scene in Psycho was the shock of the 60s. If the shower scene in the Psycho was the shock of the 60s, and for me it sure was, then its equivalent in the entire decade of the 40s was when Bambi's mother dies. And what about that line of dialogue? Man has entered the forest. And the fire and the incredibly strong anti-violence implications, the National Rifle Association will probably pick at the movie today. I know it was a cartoon. I know Thumper had one of the great scene-stealing roles, and I know there's a lot of cuteness, but I left that movie changed. It had and has a terrifying sense of life to it, and not life as we like it to be. You may think I'm crazy. You may be right, but Bambi still reverberates inside me. So that scene when Bambi's mother dies, kind of just, I think we've all seen Bambi, right? In some way, shape, or form, we've all seen Bambi. Even if you've seen it through something else, you've all seen Bambi. When her mother dies in the forest, and when this mother dies in the forest, that's as real as it gets for an animated cartoon for kids, right? Like, that's telling you that no bets are off. This is as real as it gets, right? And it's unshakable, that feeling. I remember the scene, too, when Bambi's running, and then you see it off camera, you hear, you hear the gunshot, right? And then Bambi come back, and then nobody runs after him. And then he has to go back and find his mother. It's how they shot it and made it. It's harrowing. So I get his point in that respect. Now let me circle back to Gunja Den and make strictly a judgment call. It is my absolute opinion that in every conceivable way, direction, script, star performances, special effects, emotional power, it is infinitely superior to any of the five Lucas Spielberg prize winners. Gunja Den was released in 1939, and when it came time for the Oscar balloting, it received a grand total of zero nominations. Now, before we continue, he said, let me make it strictly a judgment call on Gunja Den. It's his opinion that in every way, direction, script, star, performances, special effects, emotional power, it's infinitely superior to any of the five Lucas Spielberg prize winners. That's Star Wars, Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws, and E.T., Saying it's infinitely superior to any of them. And it got a grand total of zero nominations in 1939. Granted, 1939 was an exceptional year for Hollywood. I am going to start playing games now, but please bear with me. I hope and believe there's a point to it all. You probably don't remember the Oscar winner for 39, but let me list five movies and then you'll guess. Golden Boy, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Intermezzo, Juarez, The Private Lives of, of Elizabeth and Essex. To help you along a few refreshers, Golden Boy introduced us to William Holden, one of my favorite actors, Intermezzo to Ingrid Bergman, 
Charles Lawton played the hunchback. Paul Muni started at Juarez, and Bette Davis was Elizabeth, one of her more famous performances. The envelope, please answer none of the five in fact none of the five even got a best picture nomination but here are the five that did goodbye mr chips mr smith go mr smith goes to washington nanachka of mice and men stagecoach again please the envelope same answer none of the above they nominated more than five pictures back in old back in those days and we're back to that now and one of the five I didn't list was Weathering Heights, which also didn't win because 39 was also the year of the Wizard of Oz, which also didn't win because Gone with the Wind did. Pretty impressive year. So impressive that in spite of my passion for Gunja Den, I can't complain. It's a glorious adventure film. I may prefer it to any other, but I don't think it belongs up there with the prize winners. And I don't think any of the Lucas Spielberg films do either. So I guess that's his point. Ultimately, is he can love Gunja Den. You can love Jaws. You can love E.T. You can love all these movies, but they shouldn't be winning the prizes because at the end of the day they're comic book movies and though they're fun and they can be skillfully made and you know do a lot of things well those rewards should go to other things does it mean that you maybe um, leave out the entertainment because that needs to be high as well but maybe those other movies are doing the entertainment just as high but doing something else just as high as well that the other ones aren't maybe but let's see what he says the subject here, remember, is the ecology of Hollywood. Ecology, as I'm using it, means balance. Hollywood has always made great comic book movies. The Great Train Robbery was not intended as a sonnet. And let's not forget that early wonder that was those these two little girls having a pillow fight. But traditionally, the money made from pillow fight pictures was plowed back in, and sometimes what emerged was Citizen Kane. Now we're getting to the crux of the idea here. But traditionally, the money made from pillow fight pictures was plowed back in and sometimes would emerge with Citizen Kane. I wonder if that's still happening today. Trick question. I know it's not. And he even says this to this point in 1982. So imagine what has happened 50 years later. Maybe 40 years later. Or something like that. I don't know. Several years ago, a studio head told me this. If I've got to come up with a slate of 16 pictures a year, I know going in that four of them are turkeys. I just hope they're not too expensive and I don't lose lose too much on them. Eight or nine are going to be programmers, decent enough entertainment if I'm lucky, money makers. The last three I have hopes for. He meant he went on to explain quality, the kind of movie he might be proud of. Now, I assume it's clear by now that 1982 is not 1993 in terms of quality. But let's go back 20 years. Lawrence of Arabia won Best Picture. I thought it was a great epic and deserved everything it got. But the following picture didn't even get nominated. Birdman of Alcatraz, Days of Wine and Roses, The Miracle Worker, Long Day's Journey into Night, Sweet Bird of Youth, David and Lisa, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, Freud, and Lolita. Let's go back. Lawrence of Arabia won Best Picture. I thought it was going to be a great epic and deserved I'm not suggesting any of them should have been nominated. I'm just saying that's a pretty good list of non-comic book pictures in a year that was not considered anything special. That was 20 years ago. Now let's try again. Another unremarkable year, but these are some of the non-comic book pictures that came out in 72. The Godfather, Cabaret, Deliverance, Slaughterhouse-Five, A Separate Piece, Play It As It Lays, Lady Sings the Blues, The Heartbreak Kid, Fat City, The Candidate, Jeremiah Johnson. Let me go back and read this real quick. Let's go back. Lawrence of Arabia won Best Picture. I thought it was a great epic. So I don't know if he's saying Lawrence of Arabia is a 
comic book movie either. Which would be fascinating. Another movie that I've pretty much seen about and heard about, but I haven't seen all the way. And I do really want to watch it, but I kind of want to watch it in theaters. But, uh, so I thought it was a great epic. So I don't, I don't know. Anyway, the summer movies of 82 are now half done. And by the time you read this, most of them will have blissfully faded from your memory. But this is what comes out so far. Conan the Barbarian and Rocky Three and Poltergeist and Hanky Panky and Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and Annie and Star Trek Two and E.T. and Firefox and Grease Two and Author Author and Blade Runner and The Thing and Megaforce and Tron and and they're all comic book movies. Is what he said. Blade Runner, The Thing, Conan the Barbarian, Annie, etc., etc. They're all comic book movies. Okay, let's put us put as positive as light as possible on things. Summer, after all, has always been the time for kids' pictures because that's when the kids were out of school. And Woody Allen has directed a film, and George Hill has directed a film, and there's a strong advanced word about an officer and a gentleman. You can be as Pollyanna-ish as you want. Me, I think it's scary. Why? Because in the entire first five months of this calendar year, there were almost no films you could think of that also weren't comic book movies. A few, Victor slash Victoria, and Diner, and Missing, and Shoot the Moon. Maybe you can come up with some others. I can't. And none of the above four did the kind of business that tends to win at Academy time. Which is why E.T. would take the Oscars. There's nothing else. And why do I find this all scary? Because the basic ecology of Hollywood is, I'm very much afraid, radically changing. Wow. He seems seems very fearful, doesn't he? And mind you, this is 1982, not 2023. Imagine where we are now where you have tech companies like Amazon making movies and Apple and streaming. Can you imagine what he would have said today if he was alive? And this, again, this is 1982. Like, juxtapose that to now. It looks like a completely different world, I bet. We would have taken all of that now. But that was his time when he knew it was starting to change. And that was 40 years ago. So imagine where we are today. Let's continue. Remember the italicized quote from the studio head? The last three I have hopes for? Well, those last three aren't being made anymore. The money made from E.T. is only going to give us, if we're lucky, something like Mandrake the Magician. Jaws began the present cycle. It did business far beyond what anyone dreamed possible. Then Star Wars shattered all the records set by Jaws. And now every executive in Hollywood is trying to figure out how to hell the top of Star Wars, which of course is only right and proper. It's their job. But in their quest, they have altered the tradition of plowing back profits in pursuit of an entire range of different sorts of films. Right now, today, comic book pictures are only breeding more comic book pictures, something that has never happened to this extent before. Will the ecology shift back to what it's been? Absolutely, the studio executives will tell you. When? When the public demands it. This is something that I hate the most from people in the know. Like, well, the audience is going to see it. The audiences are going to see it. You dictate what the audience will see. You also dictate what they won't see. Because if you allow them, to, if you, you, you continue to make stuff that you want to make, even if they don't see it, like the comic book movies where we're seeing, all these places are starting to lose more and more money, but they keep on making them. Why? 
because that's what you want to make because you think at some point it's going to bounce back even though the audience is clearly telling you that's not the case and they're kind of done with this stuff for the most part but this idea that the audience demands it or when the audience demands it they'll start making other movies that's not necessarily true which william goldman is going to talk about in this moment but i love his point about Movies like Jaws and E.T. used to bring about other types of movies. Now they just bring more Jaws and E.T. and Star Wars. So now you're going to keep trying to top each other until you get to 2023 when a movie now won't break even unless it makes a billion dollars. How How is that sustainable? It's not. And that's why Hollywood is in the shape that it is now. But let's continue. Of course, there's a certain element of truth to that. But basically, it's a cop-out. Change will only come when the executives stop ignoring the churning in their guts. These are bright people. Never forget that. They don't personally enjoy the movies they're okay. Do you think they're happy going home and saying to their families, hey, guess what? A great thing happened today. We decided to make Megaforce. The ecology can only shift when these people decide that there's got to be more to life than a remake of the creature from the Black Lagoon. When they suck it up and decide to find material like ordinary people and cuckoo's nests. They can do it when they want to, basically, is what I think he's saying. They just decide not to because it's it's easier to just keep trying to make the Star Wars movies or the uh, Indiana Jones movies or all these big kind of movies. And it's harder to get people interested. Well, back then it probably wasn't. And ordinary people are one for the Cuckoo's Nest movies like that. And I would love to see what the business on those are as well. I'm going to look that up real quick. Um, I imagine that it couldn't have been, you know, that bad. It might have been better than I expected. Ordinary People came out in 1980. And it won the uh, best picture. So the box office was $90 million and it took six point two to make. So that's a success, almost $100 million. And the other one was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, 1975. It won the Academy Award for Best Picture and Best Actor in the Leading Role for Jack Nicholson. Now, let's see how much it made. Three to $4.4 million budget made $163.3 million. So movies back then were making their money. Uh, way more than, you know, a movie like that coming out today would make. And yet still, they still didn't want to put the time in to make them. Just tell you about the changing times of the movie industry. Even at that time. But juxtapose that time to now, it's even worse. But this summer's three big pictures so far, E.T., Rocky Three, and Star Trek Two. So for the present, I think we may as well prepare ourselves for seven more Star Wars sequels, he wasn't wrong, and half a dozen quests involving Indiana Jones. We just had a new Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> so we're at five, almost half a dozen. By the end of the decade, we may as well be seeing E.T. meets Luke Skywalker. And I'm sure it's it's bound to come. As Bet Davis advised us, I think we all ought to fasten our seatbelts because it looks like from here, because it looks from here like we're entering a long and bumpy night. The ecology can only shift when these people decide that they're going to be more to life than a remake of the creature from the Black Lagoon when they suck it up and decide to find material like ordinary people and cuckoo's nest. We're talking about all how the sequels are going to be it and the remakes and the. That's pretty much all we have now. Sequel remakes and, and crossover appeal, nostalgia bait like Spider-Man, No Way Home. All the movies have to make a billion dollars or they don't get their money back. 
As Bed Davis advised us, I think we all ought to fasten our seatbelts because it looks from here like we're entering a long and bumpy night. And that's The Ecology of Hollywood by William Goldman. Adventures in the Screen Trade. Very interesting chapter. Probably my favorite chapter from this book. I have a few other ones. One about subtext. Uh, something about beginning of movies, ending of movies, scripts, all that kind of stuff. Love this book so much. But I want to move on to another one that I got recently. And uh, we'll try to go quicker through this one. But this one is called Unfilmmaking, an Introduction to the Craft of the, of the Director by Alexander McK- McKendrick. He wrote, uh, made Sweet Smell of Success, amongst other brilliant movies in the 50s and 40s and around that time. And then he became a teacher teaching film out in Los Angeles, I believe, or California. And there's a section in his book, I haven't read all of this yet, this is pretty much new to me, but there's a section I want to discuss called Modernist Trends. Like I said, he's a teacher, so he's teaching a lot of students. And uh, he starts it off with this. Modernist trends. Do you agree with any of the following? One, plots are old-fashioned. A story with plot is contrived, artificial, and boring. Two, when you start writing a script, just begin at the beginning without trying to plan how it will end. Planning isn't necessary. It's much better to be spontaneous. Improvise as you go along. Three, the most boring thing of all is to be obvious. It's much more interesting to be ambiguous. Leave it to the audience to work out what you mean. Why does everything have to be explained? Four, ideas and issues are what interest me. That's where I like to start from an idea. I don't really care much about the character so much. Five, I think the most interesting thing nowadays is alienation. That's so true to life because everybody's alienated nowadays. A character that wants to do things or who has something he wants to achieve is somehow phony or corny. Six, I like symbolism. I don't see the point of characters that are realistic. It's much more interesting when they're abstract. Seven, I like to play with scenes of fantasy rather than reality. I like dream sequences and flashbacks. It's more interesting when you can play around with time. Remarks like this are very common from students at CalArts though they are often expressed in very much compli- much more complicated language. Let me say that all these comments make sense to me. I really do understand and respect the point of view being expressed here. I also recognize that they, or views of more or less the, the same kind, represent contemporary approaches to cinema that are very attractive to many students today. I have only one problem. They are not really compatible with the subject I teach here, and it may well be that the student who holds these views will be quite disappointed by the end of this course the truth is i cannot help you explore what is often called modernism in cinema this is one reason why i keep referring to movies rather than cinema the craft of storytelling is rather unmodernist it's old ancient in fact and though it is always changing always in flux and never really fixed its roots go very far back in time to the filmmaker who feels the time has come when traditional and conventional narrative slash dramatic forms need to be subverted i say to you that my particular background in storytelling will only help you explore the past the future is for you Let's now examine some of these remarks more closely. So I just think it's a very modern way of thinking, as well do Alexander McKendrick. And I, for one, have found myself wanting to go back to a more analog, what you would call archaic, what I would call traditional and classic way of telling stories. Um, Whereas I used to kind of think like a lot of the students who mentioned some of the things here, plots are old fashioned, start at the beginning without a plan when you write a script most boring things to be obvious idea and issues that would interest me uh 
alienation as a theme. I don't know if I ever felt that, but a character that wants to do things or who has something he wants to achieve is somehow corny. Symbolism. Don't I don't see the point of characters are realistic, much more interesting when they're abstract. I like to play with the scenes of fantasy within reality, sequences of flashbacks. That's why I harped on the eight and a half so much when I first watched that because I was like, oh, it's a way for me to cut corners. I don't have to tell a story the same way as everybody else with a three-act structure and write it out like this. It can just be abstract. And we I can just fill in the blanks as I go along. Then you try to write something like that, and you're like, oh, it might be harder. It's just as hard, if not harder, to do that than to, you know, tell a story in a um in a three-act structure way. Both are very difficult, but to think that one was easier than the other is nonsense. You still need you still have to be able to tell your story. And that's why I was shorting eight and a half. Eight and a half is great, not because it's it was easy to do. It's great because of how different it is and how weird it is and how um, unconventional it is while still being a conventional story on its own and having all of the beats in place. And that's what I was missing. But I was thinking like a, a kid trying to cut corners, which it sounds like a lot of the students in Alexander McKendrick's classes. And he pretty much said, I'm not with you on that. So he goes through each one. And I'm going to just read maybe a paragraph or two of each one because it's like six points. And then we're going to be done with the reading section. And uh, probably that, that, that might be, we'll save the rest for later. But okay, it says, plot isn't necessary, it's boring. He says, absolutely correct. That is, when an audience becomes aware of the existence of plot contrivance, it is irritating and causes a loss and a willing suspension of belief, of disbelief. That is so important in storytelling. The best plot is the one you don't notice is there. Plot tends to be recognized only when clumsily constructed. Well, somehow imposed on a material and when it doesn't grow out of the character's interaction. Often this remark from beginning filmmakers means something rather different, that he or she doesn't have much talent for creating an uncontrived and natural story structure, where this narrative sequence of events is rooted in the motives of the characters. Indeed, to achieve this is not easy and seems to be a skill that comes only with an enormous amount of experience, if it comes at all, often deviated from, the, from by the fact that many writers experiment with technique for its own sake. Early attempts at the laborious carpentry of plotting are bound to be clumsy and obvious. The mechanics will creak and the gaps will be obvious. For this reason, it is important to study classical story structure. This is the point of plotting through and analyzing your favorite films in the step outline form. I agree. I used to think the same thing about plot. It's not important. Then you realize every movie has a plot, right? Even if it's a loose one, even if it's if it doesn't have much. Like I just saw a movie past live, which I thought was beautiful. Everybody should go see Past Lives if you can. It's a very beautiful movie. You say it doesn't have much of a plot, but it does. It's just very, very small. And it's not doing a lot, but the plot is there. That's why the movie moves as well as it does because of the plot and how they tell the story. It makes everything feel so, so unique and so essential and so important. So uh, plot isn't boring. Uh, it is necessary just about disguising it so it doesn't feel like it's boring and unnecessary and make sure that everything that the audience sees is important so don't bother to plan why do you need to know how to end of the story before you begin how can you know the end until you got there in fact oddly this is almost the same point but there may be some misunderstanding because improvisation and planning are not mutually exclusive i suggest that the writer who embarks on a script without a strong feeling of how the climax and resolution of the story will emerge, more than likely to lose his way and end up nowhere in particular. Even if he does improvise entertaining scenes along the way, 
The effect may be disappointing because there isn't any spine that holds it all together and sustains the tension to the end. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I could put it any better than that. Uh, there's also the question of what we mean by knowing. What level of knowing are we talking about here? Modernist critics have coined the term disnarrative for the kind of narrative structure so elliptical that its connective plotting, even if you dig deeper, remains hidden in disguise. But make a step outline of, for example, Alan Raisin's film of Alan Robert of Elaine Robert Grillet's complex script last year, Mary and Bad, a work with the kind of anti-narrative structure, you're likely to find a narrative tension that is in fact very much present. So even in the unconventional stuff, like I said about eight and a half, there is a convention to it. And you only think it's not there if you're trying to cut corners like I was. Then you realize that, oh. Yeah, I was being silly. Clarity and ambiguity. Obscurity is seldom a virtue. If the point you want to make has any significance, then there is no harm in making it clearly. To those who question whether clarity is all that important, I can only say that it is the most important quality in the making of a film, wrote Truffaut. Indeed, failing to make an important point clearly is likely to confuse and irritate the audience. A problem for many beginning writers is that they underestimate their story's need for expository background. Knowing the information himself, the writer tends to assume that it is all quite obvious, even though all too often it isn't. Why does the writer need to explain everything? Because if the audience needs expository information in order to appreciate and understand an important situation or a character, then the author's failure to prepare for this may disastrously weaken his audience's enjoyment of the story as a whole. Clarity is the communication of essentials and the exclusion of the non-essential. No simple matter at all, since it can be tricky to decide what is not really essential, and then find a way to reduce emphasis on such things. It can take great ingenuity and considerable insight to isolate what is important and therefore must be retained, even accentuated, in materials that is confused or overcomplicated by irrelevancies and banalities. So, yes, um, I also I thought that, too. I don't need to explain everything. Spot, uh, exposition sucks. It's only how you're framing it. It's only how you're, you're going about telling it. If you're not a good expository writer, then, yes, it will suck. But like anything, it takes time to be able to seamlessly put it into the floor of your movie and have it not be able to be told that it's, you know, you're halting the movie to tell this story or to tell this background information. That's when it's bad. But... Clearing things up, making sure the audience is not lost, that's never a bad thing. Skipping ahead here, issues as against characters. I have on occasion claimed that many of our film students should think less and use their imaginations more. Intelligence is often equated with the capacity to criticize and analyze, but film, in my opinion, is not the best medium for directly stimulating thought. It is too richly loaded with sensory, emotional, and, and, and intuitive informational data. While most intellectual issues are best directly explored when abstracted from the complexities and contradictions of human psychology, in this sense, even drama itself, where emotions and sensory impressions are liable to get in the way, may be somewhat incompatible with our rational and intellectual faculties. A fully rounded character is one that, by definition, cannot be conceived in two-dimensional terms. In comedy, as in some other dramatic forms, a stereotype is enough to tell a story. Indeed, broad comedy often requires that the comic figure is a caricature who cannot feel too much pain and whose emotions are simplified to the point of absurdity. Similarly, a story that concentrates on ideas and issues is also less likely to require characterization that has real emotional depth. One thing of George Bernard Shaw, one thinks of George Bernard Shaw, a didact, 
who plays were felt to be more like verbal debates than human dramas and whose characters were not much more than mouthpieces for his own political and social opinions. Always, always, always make sure your characters are, is a character. And mind you, that does not mean they're going to be real life or the, or it's not going to mimic real life. In my opinion, your character can have a certain stances on things, but they also need to be three dimensional in terms of, they actually need to be doing something, not just as a mouthpiece for whatever you want them to say based on your voice. Like you said, film, in my opinion, not the best medium for, medium for directly stimulating thought. It is too richly loaded with sensory, emotional, intuitive, informational data, while most intellectual issues are best directly explored when abstracted from the complexities and contradictions of human psychology. In this sense, even drama itself, where emotions and sensory impressions are liable to get in the way, may be somewhat incompatible with our rational and intellectual faculties. So yeah, issues against issues as against character. Your character is not there to be your mouthpiece for an issue you want to talk about. The character is a character, so make them as such. Alienation. Some years ago, alienation was immensely fashionable as a theme in the cinema, but today even the word seems to have gone out of fashion. It may, however, still be evident as an attitude among young filmmakers, indeed among all young people, for whom early adulthood is a period of enormous tension who are understandably disturbed by the world around us and feel a considerable helplessness and anxiety as they try to confront it. Alienation in this sense may be the desperate attempt to protect oneself from oppressive anxiety. By deliberate distancing of oneself from emotion, one can avoid hurt, or at least that is what psychologists at the tableau level might argue. Of course, stories that deal with alienation, those that deal with highly subjective, introverted, and private matters, thoughts and feelings that are not generally communicated to others, are by their very nature problematic in dramatic terms. The alienated figure, often a thinly disguised projection of the student writer himself, is either unwilling or more often unable to make the positive act of connection through active and hence dramatic communication. Therefore, the student interested in exploring the theme of alienation must determine how best to make dramatic the non-doing and non-communicating character a not con inconsiderable task. And finally, symbol symbolic figures. Symbolism tends to be more effective in theater than on the screen. One of the limitations of cinematography is that it can be too real in the sense that it supplies more visual information than we may actually want. Any cinema in cinema cinematographic, any cinematographic image shows us so much that is that it is extremely hard to depersonalize it. It signifies a particular in, an individual cre creature. Not an abstraction like mankind or motherhood. It is the very nature of film to be specific and concrete. On the other hand, this is why cinema can make us make use of something like surrealism because the unreality of a surrealist image is created by the disturbing juxtaposition of incompatible but utterly real elements, something that cinematography can do brilliantly. And that's the section of... Um, that is the section known as Modernist Trends in On Filmmaking and Introduction to the Craft of the Director by Alexander McKendrick. And again, Sweet Smell of Success and all of his other stuff. I recommend it. I want to watch it myself. All of them. And there are other sections in here that I would love to go into at a different date. Like there's one section... It's an exercise for the student of dramatic construction where he takes two scenes 
and he rewrites them himself or something to this effect. It's called a step outline. And the two scenes he uses in this um, example is this is a process easier to demonstrate than to describe. As an illustration, here are two monologues I have written in this manner. Johnny Friendly, the antagonist in On the Waterfront, played by, played by Lee J. Cobb. And Harry Lyon, played by Orson Welles. And the third man, your own monologues might be much longer than these. Do not worry about this. You are advised to write as a first draft as much as you feel is necessary for perhaps trimming and polishing during the rewriting process. So basically, he said, by improvising in this way while constantly thinking of the plot beats, in particular from the point of view of the protagonist of a story, you're forced into the invention of situations and the incidents that are raw material narrative structure. It is also a demonstration of how good a story works from the point of view of any of its primary characters, sometimes even the minor ones, too. This is a process easier. Okay, I read that. Um, what was this actually? To the step outline. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm just trying to figure it out. But basically, he writes a monologue for a character in their words. And uh, it helps him kind of, I guess, figure out the character if he's stuck or see where they would go next because it naturally comes out of you. When you're writing from their point of view, you you naturally know what they're going to do, do next because, you know, it, it comes out. So... He used Harry Lyon from The Third Man and Johnny Friendly from On the Waterfront as his two examples. And we'll go to that at another date and time. But this book has been very instrumental to me. I haven't read all of it yet, but Alexander McKendrick is a genius. So I think it has a lot of value to it if you're, if you're seeking out something like that. And finally, because this is a kind of a longer one, have been two weeks. I just wanted to you know, do a couple of things I've been putting off and we have more books coming today and more criteria we're going to go over next week. Probably got a few coming in. I know very soon. So it's a very exciting time, uh, post Gallenberg, but I found this book when I was up there in Gallenberg at the, uh, books a million It's called John Wayne grit daily inspiration and frontier wisdom for men. Like I said, I had just saw real Bravo. Um, what was that? that a few days ago you can go to my letterbox let me see saw past lives during the vacation we went to the movies and real bravo i saw on july 9th so that was three days ago so sunday and it just made sense i saw got the john wayne book he was in real bravo so i thought i'd leave you with a little bit of wisdom or maybe two or three this is basically just a book of his sayings. I'll read the back. 365 Days of Lessons from Duke. A larger-than-life icon whose career span is staggering six decades. To this day, John Wayne is a paragon of grit and courage. Type of man you can model your life after. Now with John Wayne grit, daily inspiration, and frontier wisdom for men, you can pack with 365 timeless truths drawn from Duke's most beloved films as well as remarkable life lessons from the man himself. This daily reader allows you to start reaching morning with inspiration to start each morning with inspiration from the ledger. So I'm going to pick three at random. We'll read them and we'll get up out of here. Let's see here. Let's see here. Here's one. Day 48. Remember, you are not your struggles. He never stopped being John Wayne, even when he was sick and the work wasn't easy for him. 
He did what he was expected to do because he had kids who were depending on him to keep a roof over their heads and film crews who needed him to stay employed. Ethan Wayne, I'm guessing that's his brother. They have other paragraphs to go with it. Uh, but I'm just going to give you the little quote at the top, unless the, the paragraph is shorter. But basically, this is how we deal with adversity defines us. Sometimes that means putting in long hours at a thankless job to put food on the table. Sometimes that means staying strong with tragedy strikes. For John Wayne, adversity came in the form of cancer, one of the harshest tests nature can throw at us. But even while the Big C slowly brought him low, Duke knew that he was more than his life-threatening illness. The truly important things were the same as always, his values, his family, and his loved ones. It's beautiful. Let's see here. Explore different angles. That's one way to look at it. John Wayne is John Travers in the Star Packer, 1934. John Wayne's the characters typically know full well where they stand on matters, but that doesn't mean they immediately pull out their figurative pistols and shoot down every other point of view presented, especially when it comes when it conflicts with their own. John Travers in the Star Packer is no different. As the de facto sheriff in town, Travers knows a bit of diplomacy is the best way to get things done. That doesn't mean we have to like or endorse what others might think, feel, or suggest. It just means we have to be willing to hear them out first and keep an open mind in the process. Who knows? That might have a great point. You wouldn't have otherwise considered. It's a great, it's a great thing. Also, on the same page, said, you know, pity isn't for me from John Wayne. And we'll finish it off with a good one, hopefully. Here we go. Judge the present, not the past. I don't hold jail against you, but I hate a liar. John Wayne is Will Anderson, the Cowboys, 1972. Um, that's I don't want to read that paragraph. It, here's a quote on page, on day 73 from John Wayne. Well, you're going to think I'm being corny, but this is how I really feel. I hope my family and my friends will be able to say that I was an honest, kind, and fairly decent man from John Wayne. And that's John Wayne Grit, Daily Inspiration and Frontier Wisdom for Men. The Duke was something special. So we didn't get to a few things today. I didn't really go over Real Bravo. I would just say you go watch it. I recommend it highly. Howard Hawks' direction is staggering. He's one of the he's one of the forefathers of this stuff. Uh, his frame and his blocking, his patience is so great. The performances are great. Angie Dixon stands out. She was great. John Wayne was great. Uh, Ricky Nelson, Dean Martin, the whole group. I have no complaints, but, but the direction is the key. And how the movie looks, just looks beautiful. And the performances stand out. I have another book called The Way Hollywood Tells It. Um, I just got this yesterday. It's from David Bordwell. Story and style in modern movies. Uh, we'll touch on that at a different time. I read a few pages of that last night. Very interesting read. And like I said, I'm getting more books today. More criterions coming in. Still got the watch along, churning along. So we got a lot to look forward to. Thank you for being back with me. Uh, thank you for being patient for the two weeks. And also, I want to say rest in peace to my grandmother, Hilda Wild White. Uh, she's beautiful in life, beautiful in spirit. She had a big heart. And I'm glad she's at peace. I'm glad she's at rest. May God bless her. And uh, may we all be able to live a life that she did as long as she did on this earth. And uh, rest in peace, Mama. We love you. We love you down here. If we didn't say it enough, uh, 
Hopefully you knew it through our actions like we knew it through yours. But uh, thank you for everything. And thank you all for listening. I'm going to get up out of here. Uh, see you all next week. And that's all I got. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Peace out.